We're in a series this summer called Ancient Faith. So just to kind of situate you where we are, we're, we're taking Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 outlines all these Old Testament heroes of the faith. And it says, these guys in the Old Testament learned to depend on God by faith, just like us in the New Testament. After Jesus, we, we also have to, to look at what God's done in Jesus and trust him by faith. And the author to Hebrews is creating this, this case. He's, he's kind of laying this out for us where he's like, they didn't even have Jesus and they still learned that they could trust God. This week, we're calling it mature faith as we look at a second look at Abraham. So a couple of weeks ago, we did Abraham and then we looked at Sarah. Now we're coming back to Abraham. So the description in Hebrews is a Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, but I want, I want you to open up to Genesis. We're actually gonna spend most of our time in Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the Black Bibles, it's around the page 15 in those Black Bibles, it's the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 22. And um, as we think about this, this is a tough story. I don't know if people ever ask a lot of you. Uh, I've been married almost 28 years now. Sometimes my wife will ask for money for something, and I'm like, babe, I've already given you my entire paycheck, right? <laughs> Like, you have everything. You, you, you own it all. I've given it all to you. I, I use that to lighten the mood a little bit because this story is a, hard, is a hard story. This is where God asks everything of Abraham. And we just got to recognize up front, this is a difficult story. This is a story that we should feel a, a slight sense of horror at when we read the text. So let me set it up before I read the story in Genesis 22. Um, this is horrible and we should, we should feel some horror and some terror when we read it, but it's, it's not as horrible as we think on the first reading, okay? So God's not asking for the same thing that the evil, disgusting, ancient religions did with child sacrifice. He's not asking for that. It's something different. And we'll explain that as we move through our morning. But he is asking, in a sense, for everything from Abraham. Okay? So it is a horrible story. It's not as horrible as we think, but it is a horrible story. And we're supposed to feel that. We're supposed to feel the tension when we read the story. Okay? So let's read it. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, then arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I know most of you know the story, but I'm going to leave you hanging. Some of you don't know the story. There's a happy ending. Um, but I want to pray for us. Uh, we'll get to the rest of it. But I want to pray that God would meet us here. Again, this, this is a horrible story. We're supposed to feel the horror of it. But God has got something better for us than, than just this terror, than just this horror. So, so let me pray that his spirit would meet us here. God, we ask for your help as we study your word. We come trusting that, that you have something to say to us, but often we see these stories that are, that are just hard, and we struggle with it. So we recognize that. God, I, I pray for those that are here that, that doubt that you even speak at all. I, I pray for the gift of open-mindedness to listen, to be surprised. God, I pray for those of us that, that come expecting to hear you, we pray that your spirit would, would meet us, would come and, and give us faith and give us ears to hear that you are speaking to us here, that you are a God of grace, a God of love. Help us to see you in the text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this is a tough story, and this is a kind of character arc thing, right? Like, like last week with Sarah, we saw that she started off with the laughter of doubt, of skepticism, and her character developed to the place, by walking with God, to the place of, of a laughter of joy, Right? And so with Abraham, we see Abraham starting off as a guy that made some mistakes. I mean, Abraham did some dumb things. He struggled to trust God, but God kept working with him. God kept drawing him, kept wooing him to himself. God kept making promises to him. Um, God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you, follow me. And, and there are ups and downs in the Abraham stories. I encourage you to go back and read all those stories in Genesis, basically from chapter 12 to here. And you see Abraham being developed, being matured. So he comes to this place of God being able to ask him for everything. And this is a new, a new place for Abraham. I want to give you the vision that you may not be at the place right now where if God asked you for everything, you could say yes, but God can take you there. All right. God can mature you and show you that he can be trusted. I just want to give you that vision. That's something that God does again and again as we apprentice ourselves to the ancients. And we look back in the Old Testament, look at people that have gone before us. We we get that vision. We're like, okay, this is what God does. He starts with people like me that, that struggle to trust him. And he builds faith in our lives. And God can do that for you and for me as well. So a few background things before we get into the outline of, of this morning. Uh, one is many cultures in the ancient world practiced child sacrifice um, in horrible ways, disgusting ways. You know, we've got archaeology. We've seen reports. We, we know it was common. And so this ancient text is kind of meeting the culture in that place. This was normal. Horrible? Yes. Wrong? Yes. The Bible says it was wrong. But the Bible is kind of entering culture at that point of, yeah, these are the horrible things that go on. We're going to start there. It's going to look like that's the direction it's going, but it takes us in a new direction. So child sacrifice was common. Disgusting, but common. The other thing we have to wrestle with as we look at this text is, Child sacrifice still happens today. Child sacrifice still happens today. We do it in different ways. We clean it up. We make it clinical. It still happens today. So we need to wrestle with that as modern people. We're not like these, you know, chronological snobs that are like, we're modern people that don't do those crazy bad things. And we, we kind of do the same things. We just dress it up in different clothing, really. So we need to wrestle with that. 
as well. But also, I want us to understand that God said you shouldn't do that. So Jeremiah 19.5, clear text. If you want like an, an ethical text, write this one down. In Jeremiah 19.5, God says, I never commanded you to sacrifice children. He says, I never told you to do this. It never even entered my mind. Pretty aggressive language. So there's something here that is supposed to remind us of this horror of child sacrifice, and yet it is not exactly the same thing because God's like, that never even entered my mind. I never commanded you to sacrifice children, right? So something different must be going on here. It's supposed to remind us of that, but not be the exact same thing, okay? So here's our outline. Number one, father and son work together. Father and son work together. That's really the main point that helps us see it's not quite the same as this disgusting child sacrifice that was common in the day. Father and son work together. Secondly, we see the tension of terror versus provision. The text is trying to stir terror, horror, ugh, in our heart, tension, and then show God provides a way. There's provision. That's the central thrust of this message, provision. This will be named the mountain on which God provides, terror versus provision. And then the third point is faith multiplies. It's just a pattern we see again and again in scriptures. As you trust God, God's going to take your faith and he's going to impact others with it. See that with Abraham, it's confirmed here. The pattern's shown here. It's kind of laid out more explicitly in the New Testament. Man, as you trust God, God's going to use you. He's going to do things through your life as you learn to trust him, as you learn to have faith in God. So outline is... Father and son work together, terror versus provision, faith multiplies. First point, father and son work together. Um, So the first proof of this, the the togetherness, um, that's supposed to remind us, honestly, of heavenly father and Jesus the son. We're supposed to be reminded of that in this text, but here's some proofs for that. Um, The word together is repeated three times. And so things like this sometimes will stick out to the Hebrew listeners better than it would to us. And so a lot of this, I'm, you know, I'm relying on guys that know the Hebrew better than I do. They're showing these patterns. But you can see that in the English text. You can see that English word three times. Together, together, together. It's in verse 6, verse 8, verse 19. Like, okay, that, that's a theme. That's a repeated theme here. There's a togetherness. It also starts in verse 2 with their closeness, their relationship of love. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The way the text is written there, it's like showing, it's like building a case of, of intimacy and love and closeness and togetherness between father and son. Take your son. Well, well that's, that's closeness right there. I, I love my son. This is your only son. Now, he's not. He's not genetically his only son, right? But as far as the promise of what God's going to fulfill through him, it's the only son. And I want you to see, again, a connection with Jesus. In John 1, sometimes this is translated as only begotten, one and only, unique son. There's different ways that the English translations do this, but it's a, it's a similarity where it doesn't mean the only genetic son that exists. What it means is there's this special office, this special relationship of closeness, of intimacy, so that, you know, John 1 can say he's also Jesus, the only son, and he's the one that's in the bosom of the Father. Like he's, he's got his arm around the Father. Like they're together. They're one. That's an important thing for us to understand in the text. He's his only son. This is the son 
that he loves. There's this thing that theologians describe called the pactum salutis. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Good Latin phrase. You got a Latin phrase? You can write that down. You'll sound smart now. Um, It just means like the pact of salvation, pactum salutis. It's sometimes described as the covenant of grace. The idea is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together, a a community of love, one God and three persons says, I'm going to save a broken humanity. They're together on that. Some liberal scholars will describe the sacrifice of Jesus as cosmic child abuse, which is disgusting and a complete misreading of the New Testament. Like this father, you know, sending a unwilling son out there. They were together. The scriptures are clear about this. I'll give you some cross-references for this too. You can ask me later. John 6, 38 through 40. John 5, 30. John 5, 43. John 17, 4 through 12. This is this picture of the father and the son being on the same page. It's a, it's a major theme of John. Like Jesus and the heavenly father were one. They were together. He was not an unwilling sacrifice. He was a willing sacrifice. So we see that. We're supposed to compare these texts. We're supposed to see the echoes between this story and what Jesus has done for us. Another kind of point from common sense that'll help us to understand that this was different than the child sacrifice of the day. Uh, Verse six, look at verse six. It just says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, right? So I think a lot of times when we read this in English, we're thinking child sacrifice, like Abraham's taking his little baby and laying him on an altar. No, this is a big son. This is his big boy. He's either a big, strong teenager that's probably stronger than his 100-year-old father, or he's like a 30-year-old man, because in the next chapter, he's 37. So, so this is a strong young man or adult man, able to resist. They're on the same page. They're working together. We're supposed to see the togetherness here. It's clear from the text he doesn't know everything that's going on, right? He's like, We're, how's this going to work? I don't, I don't see the ram. And Abraham's like, God, God will provide. And the Hebrew author says, yeah, Abraham figured that God could raise him from the dead. He'd learned to trust him. He didn't really know how God was going to provide, but he just says to Isaac, God will provide. So verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together, not really knowing how God was going to make this work. So again, I want you to see, man, there's, there's horror here, there's terror here, this is scary, this is crazy. He is asking everything, but it's not, it's not like the, the laying of a, of a baby on an altar. It's not the same thing as the horrific child sacrifice of the ancient world or like the horrific child sacrifice of the abortion industry today. This, this was not the same thing. This is a father and son working together. They were on the same page. They loved each other. They were cooperating. They worked together. Another thing that I think we need to understand is that in the ancient world, they were much more communal than we are. So in the history of cultures, you have cultures that are more communal, right? Tribal. And you have cultures that are more individualistic. Where where are we on that map? Anybody know? We're way over here. Like in the history of society, we're way over here. And so some of the best things about our country come out of that. We we treasure, right, individual rights before the law. We treasure personal responsibility. Those are blessings, and they're biblical ideas. But the Bible also affirms communal ideas, like you should care for your family. You're one with your tribe, you know, like 
you should work together. Those things are also affirmed in Scripture. So no society really works it out perfectly. So we just have to recognize we're way over here. We're hyper-focused on individualism. We've kind of deified self in a really weird way, like where we look inside ourselves and like, I'm the master of the universe. You know, like it's, it's out of control in some ways. Again, societally, there's some good things. There's some things we treasure, but also it's like we're getting out there. And we have to see that, that this would have been really common for a tribal chief and the next tribal chief, the prince, to recognize that both of them owed a debt and they were willing to pay it for the sake of their tribe. So it was just common, right? The prince saying, I'll, I'll fight for my tribe or I'll go pay a debt for my tribe or I'll go suffer and sacrifice for my tribe. It was just a common thing. They, they just saw that. That's hard for us to see. But that's a biblical idea, right, that's fulfilled in Jesus who gives himself for his people. He sacrifices himself for us. So we should see that. And that's like, that's an ideal for us to shoot for, right? We don't want to throw away all the blessings of our individualism, but we also want to see the blessings of this kind of communal responsibility where, where someone steps up, where Jesus steps up and says, yeah, I'm going to give myself for this people. I'm going to save this family. I'm going to save this tribe of people who trust in me. And so we're supposed to see all these echoes in the text. Um, I grabbed a picture of a a father and son working together. Because again, I, don't, I think these are rare in our culture. Like we're so isolated, we're so separated. It's hard, it's hard for us to even imagine, you know, family closeness. Just like imagine having a relationship with your parents where you just, you loved them and you just trusted everything they said. And you like worked in the same business together and you had the same goals. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be amazing? It's not very common in our culture. Or with your kids, there's just this oneness of purpose where you agreed, you were about the same things. Again, that's like this, this hazy, distant, like, yeah, that never happens, right? That's kind of, that's how we think about it as modern people in this world. And that's, that's an ideal that I think we see a little bit echoed in this text, right? Abraham and Isaac's relationship wasn't perfect. This is kind of like a high, high moment of, of togetherness. But again, we see it even more clearly in, in Jesus and the Heavenly Father. Read the Gospel of John. It's this, this thing, this drumbeat that you see again and again, the oneness of the Father. I'm going to do the Father's will. I love the Father. I'm about the Father's business. We do the same thing. We're on the same page, right? And so it's this beautiful picture we see in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, saving us, loving us, sacrificing for us. Um, so just a very practical level, like down here, shoot for more oneness with your kids, with your parents, with your spouse. That's something we lack in our culture. We try to find ways to create that. I was, I was searching for a picture of me and my own son when he was like four. We did this thing where I, I can just remember because it it's a photo. I can't find the photo now. I built a brick walkway in our backyard with an antique house we had 20 years ago. And I was like, you know, father and son, you got to find ways to work together. Like it doesn't come natural. You have to create these moments. And so he was like carrying the bricks to me, you know? Like, it would have been easier for me to just do it by myself. But I wanted, I wanted that bond, you know? Like, we wanted to do something together. I wanted to start teaching him that we could work together, that we were on the same page. I just want to encourage that in you as parents. It's never going to happen naturally. <laughs> you, you have to force those moments. I joke about it sometimes. Like, you got to let your kids into the kitchen, right? Like, it's one thing to cook meals for your kids. You should feed your children. That's a part of parenting, Okay. But at some point, you're going to have to teach them how to cook, and that's going to be a mess, right? 
that's going to be a mess. It's easier for us to function as individuals, for us to live our separate lives and to do our own thing, but we're going to have to learn and create ways to, to come together and work together. That's just an ideal, again, that's like a down here application. I think the up here application is, that's, that's what God did for us. That's who he is, perfect oneness. The Trinity is like one of the hardest things to understand in Christian theology, but it's also one of the most beautiful pictures of a community of love operating in perfect oneness to save you and me. The Father planning, the Son executing, the Spirit filling us, the, this, this just perfect symmetry, this perfect togetherness. You and I were, were wandering away from God. We were rebels. We were doing our own thing. We said, God, I don't, I don't want to be with you in Eden. I just want to take your stuff and do my own thing. And that has caused chaos and destruction in Adam and Eve's life and in our life. We keep replaying the same sin over and over again. But it was not enough for God to just leave us where we were. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he came after us. He took our sins upon himself. He gives us his resurrection life. He fills us with his spirit. We're adopted into his family. We now have a one and only son relationship with the father as well. We're now part of that family. He loves us. And we need to see that. This should bring us to a place of worship. Like see this weird pale reflection in this story and it should remind us of the greater story. There's so many, and again, you can go back and, and study more. I went way over this morning. I'm cutting at least two minutes out of the sermon this time. Um, there's, there's just more there. I also think we need to, again, be clear of this. This is another application, kind of tangential. We need to let clear scriptures interpret less clear scriptures, right? So you see a weird story here. This story is not telling you if you hear weird voices telling you to do something bad, you should obey them. That's not the point of this story, okay? So let me state that more clearly. If you hear weird voices telling you to do something bad, don't do it. God's ethical standards are very clear. So I said this before, Jeremiah 19.5 says, God never asked them to do that weird child sacrifice stuff. Like this was something different. This was a, a prince in agreement with his father making a sacrifice together. It's supposed to remind us of the Trinity. It's not supposed to remind us of, uh, or not supposed to be the evil child sacrifice of the ancient world or the evil child sacrifice of our day. So again, Jeremiah 19.5, they built these high places to Baal, Baal, this Old Testament uh, false god they struggled with. They're burning their sons in the fire as offerings to him. And the prophet Jeremiah says, this is something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. God's very clear about his ethical standards. We live in a day and age where on social media, you're going to see these hand grenades of like, well, the Old Testament Israelites weren't supposed to have tattoos, so gotcha. You should never obey anything in the Bible, right? Or the Old Testament said you're not supposed to eat shrimp, so gotcha. Forget all the ethical standards of the Bible. None of it makes any sense. You know, like we, we see these bombs thrown. No, the ethics of the Old Testament are very clear. Are we bound by all the ceremonies of the Old Testament? No, that's a, that's a different set of rules. We're not in ancient Israel. We're not bound by those ceremonies. The ethical standards are consistent. And the Bible is coherent and it makes sense. If you don't understand it, that's okay. There's thousands of years of cultural distance. Not everybody understands it. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now, right? We're teaching out of the Bible so that together we can learn how this Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus and makes sense of a God who loves us and calls us to obedience.
but it is consistent, it is coherent. And if you struggle to see that, we want to help you understand it more. We're going to help you see that this, this book makes sense. There are some parts of it that are harder than others. We can admit that. This is a hard story. This is one of the hardest stories in the Scripture. But he's not calling them to do the evil things that the other societies were doing. He's also not calling us to do those things either. either. So I just want to make commentary on abortion. Um, I don't want to make a lot of explanation, but abortion is the modern form of child sacrifice. If you're considering it, you shouldn't do it. I want to encourage you not to do that. Don't. Most, the vast majority of abortions are, are done for reasons of economy or convenience. Don't, don't do it. There's a ministry we sponsor called Hope Pregnancy Center that'll help you. If you don't want to talk to me about it, it's a great ministry. That, that, that's exclusively what they do. They come alongside folks. They help them materially, help them to keep the child if that's the decision, or if they need to give that child up for adoption. Those are two great options. Those are two fantastic options. We want to help you with that. We will help you. We give money and resources to help people. We give money and resources to the, to the foster care and adoption ministries in this area. That, that's valuing life. That's the ethical standards of the scripture, and we want to help you to do that. The other thing I want to say is if you've had an abortion, many people have, that God can forgive that. It's not like some unforgivable sin. Scripture's clear that we all sin in different ways, and you can lay that at the feet of Jesus and find forgiveness and healing. And again, we want to help you with that process as well. I want to also challenge those of us that aren't wrestling with abortion but are wrestling with the decision to emotionally abandon our kids? That's the more common thing, right? It's the thing a lot of us carry wounds from, and a lot of us, a lot of us then inflict those same wounds on our kids. Don't put your career first, and don't put your personal fulfillment first. The world is selling you a lie when it says, you can be personally fulfilled if you just look inside your heart if you just navel gaze enough, you can find who you really are. You can be your true self. No, that's not going to work. It never works. Thousands of years of literature and history has proven otherwise. It's not going to work. Put your kids before yourself, before your own happiness and self-fulfillment. It'll be worth it in the end. Okay, next point. Terror versus provision. Terror versus provision. We're supposed to feel the terror, and then there's a switch where it's like, God provides, right? And this is a mirror of our own spiritual life. When we come into the presence of a holy God, we should feel some sense of terror, like, man, I'm, I'm messed up, and then see the grace of God that provides forgiveness, the provision of Christ on the cross, reconciliation, so we're, so we're to walk through the terror and the provision. So Hebrew scholars that know a lot more than I do about this will, sh- will show that there's this kind of change in pace starting in verse 9. And so in Hebrew, the and is le, and so you've got le plus a verb, le plus a verb. And so, again, if you're hearing this in Hebrew, it'd be this kind of drumbeat of le, 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 and it's like the action is speeding up. Um, so like if you're watching a movie and there's the scary music, you know, dun, 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 dun dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Or, you know, the violins or whatever it is. You're going to be hearing that in the Hebrew, right? Um, and so it's not quite as clear in the English, but I'll read it in the English and just know this is like the action speeding up. You're supposed to feel terror. You're supposed to feel scared. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the stone altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of a son. Instead is a key word there. Uh, A theological term is substitution, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's instead. There's a huge insteadness in our understanding of who God is. He is holy. And we all owe a debt. Keller, when he teaches on this story, talks about how every one of us, when we're honest, know that we owe a life debt to God. And that he can call it up whenever he wants. And then we say, but instead, there's the substitute. There's the provision of God. That's what we're supposed to see when we see this ram coming in. Verse 14 So verse 13, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of a son. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. He changed the name of that place, right? It's now marked forever. It's a memorial to God's provision. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Second Chronicles 3 tells us, that Mount Moriah, this place, is where the temple was built. Isn't that amazing? God's a great storyteller. The more you read the scripture, you're like, man, all these parts are like hyperlinked to another part. You know, they're just, they're echoes back and forth and back and forth. And so I grabbed a, a picture of a priest offering Levitical sacrifices. So this is more in keeping with later and what Moses had put into effect and the offerings they would make in the temporary tabernacle and then later in the permanent temple, but in both places they're making animal sacrifices. And so again, it's another one of those things where as modern people, we have this distance like, ooh, that's gross and blood and yuck, you know? But it's telling a story, telling a story that was culturally very appropriate, right? Like God enters into this world of child sacrifice and he says, no, I'm going to provide a way. He enters into this world of animal sacrifice and he says, this points to something more beautiful than a capricious, angry God. This points to a God who is rightly angry at sin, but the only way for us to enter into his presence is by perfect spotless sacrifices. He's telling a story. He's telling us that we should feel terror at our sin, that we should, like Isaiah, say, I am undone. We should also see provision in Jesus We should see the provision that God gives us. So so that's the big application point. Like, have you walked through both sides of that? If you've grown up a good kid, chances are you might have missed the terror over your own sin. You might think you're good enough and God is pleased with you. And you need to back up. Uh, Preachers talk about this a lot, that you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Have you ever heard that phrase before? So you might have grown up like doing the right thing doing your homework, brushing your teeth, whatever, you know, like obeying your parents. But that's not enough. The prophets of the Old Testament say our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. It's like 
he, he requires of us perfect love and justice. So we should feel the terror of our own unholiness before God. Sin is real. It's cosmic treason. It's turning away from God. We're separated from him. It's a reality. And as you feel that terror, then you can fully appreciate the grace that God provides in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, right? So the Romans argument is really pretty helpful. Because some of you grew up thinking you were good, and you'll be reading Romans 1 through 2, and you're like, yeah, Paul, get him, because he talks about all the bad people that are disobeying God. So, so go read that if you're one of those good people. Read that, and he's like, yeah, they're terrible. And the wrath of God is poured out on people by giving them over to their sin, right? Like, God doesn't strike people with the lightning bolts. He just gives them what they want. He's like, okay, your will be done. Do, do what you want. And that separation grows and grows and grows. But then it's this great argument. In Romans 2, he turns in on the religious people and he's like, oh, and by the way, you're exactly like them. You're the same. We, we, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We've all missed the mark. But there's propitiation. There's provision in Jesus. So come to him. So recognize you've missed the mark. Whether you're the wild one or the good one, we've all missed the mark. And then come to him and say, Jesus has provided. Jesus is the lamb. So John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The angel Abraham, behold, there's the lamb that God is providing for us. It's supposed to remind us of, of the ultimate lamb, the perfect once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's the, that's the theme of Hebrews. That's where the whole book of Hebrews is going. It's like, look, look to Jesus. There are all these echoes in the Old Testament, but look to Jesus. He's, he's the fuller, the better provision. So step one, for us is have you come to that place of terror, confessed your sin before God? Confess your sin. I'm, I'm a sinner. I've, I've left you, God. I haven't cared about you. Have you confessed your shame, your sin, your neediness, your smallness, your brokenness before him? And then confessed that he provides. Confessed his grace to you. God, you've forgiven me. You love me. Have, have you walked through those steps? The way we make that public in Christian tradition is by being baptized you then act out what God has already done for you by faith. By faith, I'm washed and resurrected, and God loves me. And then I, I kind of walk that out. I act that out in community. We're going to have a baptism in September. Theoretically, it might start cooling off a little bit because it's like it's raining and cool now, but the sun is coming, okay? For those of you that are new to the area, August will be painful, but like second weekend of September, we're going to have a baptism at the creek. It should be a great time. But that may be you. You may be ready to take that next step. I want to encourage you to take that next step of showing what God has done for you. Being baptized, confessing Christ publicly. Um, for some of you, you, maybe you've already done that, and you need to just walk through the daily, the daily rhythm of recognizing every day God's provision for you. So there's this buzzword that goes around a lot of times, gospel-centered. Um, sometimes it's just a buzzword that means nothing. But in its best use, what it means is the gospel is not only what saves you. It's not only the doorway into relationship with God, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, it's what every day helps you to grow in your understanding of God's provision. That's what actually transforms people. That's what changes us. Is every day like, man, God, you still provide. I still need you. You're still my life. You're still my hope. You're still my provision. So just encourage you to come back to that every day, to make that the center of your prayer time, to make that the center of your Bible reading time. God provides, God is good, God loves me. I see that in Jesus, I see this provision. You keep, keep looking back to that again 
and again. All right, last point, faith multiplies. Last point is that faith multiplies. And so we're, we're going to see here as a, a pattern in Abraham and his faith that's then made explicit throughout the rest of the Bible. So let's look at the pattern. It's in verse 15. And so remember, background, encourage you to go back and study the, the rest of the, the chapters and the stories about Abraham from Genesis 12 through 22. But you see ups and downs. He struggles to trust God and God calls him to faith and he trusts him and then he struggles. And you know, there's ups and downs just like in your life and my life. But there's this beautiful picture of God covenanting with Abraham where the normal covenant pattern is they would walk between broken, split open animals, right? To show how serious it was. It's a blood covenant. They'd walk through the bloody trail between animals that were split in half. I know it's gross. Sorry. This is what they did, okay? Don't be so judgmental, all right? And so they'd walk through that blood and the two covenant partners would say, may this death and blood come upon me if I don't fulfill the covenant. But with Abraham, God knocks him out and puts him on the side. In the presence of God, this fire passes through the blood in the middle. And that comes to full fruition in Jesus Christ. The, the blood, the death comes upon Jesus because of our failure to fulfill the covenant. And so it is crystal clear that God is blessing us by grace, saving us by grace, not by our performance. But then what we see here as an affirmation of mature faith, and God says, more is going to happen. I'm going to do more in your life. There's this multiplying factor. You're going to reach other people. You're going to impact other people as you trust God more. Okay, so I just want to clarify that. A great, greatest summary I just shared last week of how faith and works, works together is in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So James talks about, there's the kind of faith, this kind of a fake faith. It can't really save you. It doesn't really do anything, right? Um, but a real active faith, that's a real faith. So we're saved absolutely by trusting in Jesus. It's what, it's what God has done. It's what Jesus has done. We talked about this last week. Is your faith is not so much about you, it's about God. So we want to maintain that. But then that kind of faith can't help but change us. It changes your view of God. You start to see God as actually trustworthy, right? Instead of kind of in a sullen way, like, oh, I don't like this God, he's gross. You actually start to love him. You actually start to trust him and you actually start to obey him. That's what we're seeing here in Abraham's life. So verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So again, in context, God is saying, your obedience is an expression of real faith. And that is going to bless other people. Galatians 3 says, this is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, secondarily in us. Every tongue and tribe coming before God the Father, worshiping Jesus together, and we're going to bless other people. There's a multiplication factor. So when Jesus talks about this kind of multiplication, he has a couple of parables in Matthew 13. Jesus says it's kind of like a mustard seed, which is a really tiny seed, but then the mustard tree in the ancient Middle East, different from our mustard, it would get huge. So you get a tiny little seed and a gigantic tree. He says it's also like leaven 
Leaven you can't even see. It's microscopic, right? But it, it rises and it spreads and it multiplies. Jesus says that's how, the, that's how the kingdom works, right? You just have the faith of a mustard seed. You're going to make a huge impact. Isn't that amazing? God works through us like he works through Abraham. I'm not Abraham. You're not Abraham, right? We want to make sure we know our place. But there's a parallel and God still works in this pattern. Jesus says that's how the, the kingdom continues to work and expand and impact others. So how many of you have ever been out in the country and you see the stars at night? Raise your hand if you've been out there where you can like see the stars, like legit, you can see the stars, right? It's gorgeous, isn't it? Those of you city folk, sometime, some vacation, go somewhere remote where there are no city lights. It's gorgeous. Just amazing. There's so many stars. They're uncountable. I think a better illustration for us as modern people with electric lights is the sand, so those are the two illustrations God gives. Here's a picture of sand just going through your hands. Can you just real count, tell many, count real quick, how many sands are there in our hands still? Don't count the ones falling out. Just in our hand, can you tell me? Any? Nobody? No savants? Okay. I don't know how many there are either. I think the point of the illustration is that it's uncountable. It's uncountable. The impact that God will have through you as you trust him is uncountable. Like, you'll never really know until you're with him face-to-face in heaven. You're going to see that God has used your faith. And he's worked through you. Isn't that amazing? God works through us. Not only does he save us by grace, it's not our earning, it's not what we've done, but then he works through us. He ministers through us. Our faith can multiply as we trust him. It grows. And so we want to be careful to stop shy of the kind of mechanistic, mechanistic like health and wealth gospel that says, if you have enough faith, then you'll get a Cadillac or then you'll get a new, you know, like we want to avoid those extremes, but we also want to see, man, when I trust God, he, he does stuff, right? Like he works through me. He's not a cosmic vending machine where I put in a quarter of faith and I get out stuff. You know, it's not, he's not a machine, but as I trust him, he's going to use me to impact others. As you trust him, he's going to use you to impact others. It's really a glorious thing. Jesus loves you, and he uses you to love other people. It's a glorious privilege that we have walking with Jesus. So we, we talk all, of, all the time about ways we can do that here, part of the community, serving on a team. We want you to do that. We want you to be a part of what God's doing at Grace Bible Church. But do that because you trust that he's good. Don't do that because, well, Pastor Dave told me I had to, right? You do that because by faith you have this sight you can see like Abraham. No, I, I can actually trust him. So I can step out of my comfort zone and serve others. I can actually start a conversation with that weird person at work or my neighbor. <laughs> I could talk to him. God can use me to bring hope and encouragement. I can help them when they're struggling. I could use my gifts for God's glory. He's going to give you ways to impact others. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do this. Moving beyond our discomfort and recognizing, man, God is good. I trust him. I'm going to start following him. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to offer what I have for his glory, and he's going to multiply it. My favorite illustration of this is from Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents says that people that trust the master invest what they had, and it multiplied. There's this one guy that said, I didn't trust you, master, I knew you were harsh, mean, and unfair. So I buried my talent in the backyard. 
that has convicted me in huge ways because I've, I've done that in life. I've had those moments where I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I'm scared. I'm going to pull back. I don't know if I should try this. I don't know if I should do that. And in a sense, I'm burying my talents and saying, I don't trust that the master is gracious and kind. The point of that story is that, that when we trust him, when we have faith in the master's goodness in Jesus, we're going to spend what he's given us for his glory. Our time, our talent, our treasure, our opportunities, our moments, our emotional energy, whatever it is. And again, flip side of that is Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? As you trust the master, you'll also rest. You'll work for him, you'll spend for him, and you'll, you'll rest. You'll know that he's ultimately the one in charge. He's making it work, and he's working through you. I want to wrap up here. The image that Hebrews gives us, the summary of this story, in Hebrews it says, that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so the author to Hebrews is, is purposefully now leading you to think about another resurrection, right? So the author to Hebrews keeps saying, man, look back at these guys. They trusted God's goodness and his provision. All the more we should trust his goodness and provision, right? Like Abraham had this hazy faith. Like he was just sorting it out. I don't know what God's going to do, but, but he knew God could raise the dead. What do we know? We know God did raise the dead. We see what he did in Jesus. How much more should we trust him and love his provision for us in Christ? That's, that's what we're called to in this text. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us, that you provide for us. And God, give us the vision of a faith that, that matures. Thank you that you've given us all these examples of people like us that stumble and are confused and are fearful, and yet you keep pursuing, you keep loving, you keep providing, you keep showing your grace and your kindness. Help us to see and celebrate that. We thank you for the pursuit that we see most clearly in the death and resurrection of your beloved son. Thank you for giving that to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.